And uh, so as we come this day, as working our way through Genesis chapter 15, after these things, after what things? Do you guys remember back chapter 14? The four kings in the north came down and attacked a whole bunch of kings on the way, but then it attacked the five kings of the valley next to what is the Dead Sea today. And all in there, there were five kingdoms, Sodom and Gomorrah are two of them that we're familiar with. And they conquered them and they were carrying them all back into slavery with all of their goods. And they, somebody came and said, and Lot, your nephew, Abraham was one of them. He grabbed 318 guys and he took off uh, and won the battle, conquered the four kings and had conquered the five kings. And now he has all the spoils of nine kingdoms. And of course, he's conquered four kingdoms. He's then ends up insulting the five kingdoms because that night before he was to turn over the people to the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord met him as the king of Salem, which is peace, and um, the priest of God most high, a king and a priest. Melchizedek means righteousness. The king of righteousness in Salem is peace, the king of peace. And Hebrews talks about it. And this king of righteousness, this priest most high, he offers him wine and Bread. He gives him communion, so to speak. John says that Jesus said, and Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And he was changed because the very next day, as it says in Matthew 6, there's either one or two gods, God or money. And if you love the one, you'll hate the other. Cling to the one, you'll despise the other. And he comes and, and sure enough, he despise this king of Sodom. And he said, I don't want anything. I wouldn't even take a little piece of leather that fell off your sandal. I take nothing from you because I have met God most high, who's the possessor of the heavens and the earth, which is interesting because when Melchizedek met Abraham, he said, Abraham, oh, you possessor of the heavens and the earth. And he turns around because whatever God has, we have. Whatever we have is God. So it was just a really powerful time. But as we're going to learn tonight, true faith is where you have spiritual things happening and you believe God that those things are reality to you right now on earth. So we had this physical battle in one, but then he had this spiritual mountaintop experience with Melchizedek, but now he's back to real life. And did my spiritual experience, did it transfer into my real life on earth, so to speak? And, and he's afraid. Read on in chapter 15. So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, not yet Abraham, but if I say Abraham, it's okay. He's going to be Abraham very soon. But the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, number one. I am your shield, number two, and your exceedingly great reward, number three. Why was he afraid? Because he had conquered four kingdoms. I could come back and get him later. He had insulted five kingdoms. 
So virtually everybody <laughs> that lives anywhere near him whatsoever uh, doesn't like him. And there's just that human reality of, man, if they want to get their army back, they may come back and attack me, or uh, am I really safe? And, and the Lord says, you don't need to be afraid. And I love that. I'm your shield. I'm your buckler. I'm your protector. And then he says, I'm your exceedingly great reward. And I think Abraham was sort of scratching his head on that one. He, God's going to make it clear here in a minute. But your wealth is not in your gold and your silver. And he's going to learn in this chapter that his wealth isn't in all his kids and grand, grandkids and great-grandkids either. His wealth is in the Lord. You know, the Lord sees us as his treasure. Jesus said about the guy who took everything he had and he bought the field so he could get the treasure in the field. That's us. Also the pearls of great price. So the thing that is the greatest thing in all of heavens and the earth to the Lord is us, his children. Us who have been made in his own image. Us who are willing to believe on him and, and have that fellowship with him. You know what I have found in teaching through the Bible? When you come to that phrase, do not be afraid, you need to take a minute. Because usually where we're at in the word is where we're at. And there are many times in my lifetime where people are genuinely afraid because things are so unsettling in the news. And of course, we have sort of been that way for many years now, haven't we, uh, in, in the country. But in the kingdoms around, it's, it's amazing. I mean, basically... Canada now is just a dictatorship, uh, as evil as you can get. France has been that way. All of Europe is, is lost its mind. Um, the Kremlin is being Kremlin again. And uh, China is always the sneaky cat in the bushes. You never know what they're up to quite, what they're going to do next. And it's, it is a good reason to be afraid. And I think the Lord is saying, hey, as for you, you don't be afraid. There's nothing that can come against us, right? There's no weapon that man or demon can form against us that will prosper. You know, I remember when 911 happened and and. All of a sudden, people are buying the Koran and saying, who are Arabs and who's uh, Osama bin Laden? And, and, and I just thought, it's the hardest place to evangelize. There's almost no missionaries in that 1040 window. It's very hot. It's very oppressed. It's all about the Muslim world that's in such darkness. We don't think about them. We don't care about them. We don't know about them. And I thought... It's just like the Lord kicking the beehive of the Twin Towers to wake us up to pray for enemies we didn't know we had. Or we knew them, but we didn't really care to think about them. We didn't. And all of a sudden, we're focused on them now. And of course, our first knee reaction is, go get them, go kill them. Nobody messes with us like that. But then as Christians, yeah, we may militarily have to fight them, but we need to pray for them. That's really what the Lord wanted. And such revival is happening now in uh, Iran and Iraq and some of these Arab countries is still hush-hush, but it's quite a miracle happening. And so 
um, in the same way, I think all these things are been spoken by the Lord, wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilence. And it's all a part of these last days. And we as Christians, the little red flag goes up. Yep, check that box, check that box. The Lord's coming again soon, right? And so if we end up in prison, it's because there's people that are in that prison ready to hear the Lord. If we get conquered by China, we're all missionaries to China now because they're everywhere around us, right? Our reward, our wealth is not on this earth. And our wealth really isn't our country either, as much as we love it being that and has been that really uniquely in all the history of man. What we have experienced these last couple hundred years in our country has never been experienced before to the degree we've had it. And um, so it is a very exciting thing, but yet don't be afraid. Be excited. The Lord's drawing near. But I just thought, let's look at a few verses to encourage ourselves in the Lord. In Psalms 34, 4, I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me out of all my fears. Isn't that the way it is? You got one fear and then it goes away. And then the nine other fears you forgot you had um, reveal themselves. There's always something to be afraid of. Psalms 23, 4, Yea, though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalms 56, 3, Whenever I'm afraid, I trust in you. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you, yes, I will help you. I will withhold you, uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 43.1, and now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel. I like that. He made us, we're Jacob, but we had to be changed. He did that too. He changed us into Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you, bought you out of your bondage. I have called you by your name. You are mine. I love that. Don't be afraid. You are his. Paul, when he went to Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I was in weakness and fear and much trembling. You don't picture Paul being that way. In Acts 18, we know the Lord had spoke to him and when he was at Corinth and the Lord spoke to him and said, Paul, in a vision by night, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent for I am with you and I and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. So Paul, this great seasoned apostle, was at times afraid and wanting to shrink back. And God said, don't. And then, of course, the grand poobah of all verses not to be afraid. Luke twelve thirty two, Do not fear little flock or little lambs, I think the King James says. Do not fear, O little lambs, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Awesome, isn't it? Well, heading back over to Genesis 15. So don't be afraid. He is shielding us. He's our buckler. He's got us protected on all sides. 
And as you are going to learn, if there's anything you're holding on to on this earth going, oh, at least I have this as my treasure, there is no treasure on this earth, guys. Naked we came in, naked we're going out. And things that you value so highly are, are really not what you think they are. Only God is our reward. And guess what? We are his reward. In verse 2, But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer, Eliezer um, of Damascus. So he immediately comes back and says, yeah, okay, great, great, great. You're, you're my shield, you're my exceeding great reward, you, you know, be very great, thing, thanks. But I, practically, in reality, I have no kids. Now we're going to learn chapter 16, he's 86. Remember, back in chapter 12, he came into the land at 75. He's been between Bethel on one side, Ai on the other, the house of God and the heap of runs. He builds an altar and he worships. Been through a lot of different things. But he's going, I'm getting older. My wife is getting older. She's 10 years younger, 76. I don't think it was happening too much at this time where 76-year-old women are having kids. And he's saying, we've ran out of time, you, you know. Um, we were really close to running out of time the time he got to the promised land. But now, um, I guess Eleazar from Damascus, who's been with me all this time, um, I guess he's going to be the heir. So it, this is really a pity party, okay? He's really sluggish in his faith. But God meets him in Melchizedek, gives him a victory in this great battle that just happened. The Lord meets him in this vision. You know, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your seeing the great reward. The Lord meets him. And he's like, well, I don't have any kids. And I guess this old fart next to me is going to be the guy that inherits everything. You know what? I, I love the fact <laughs> that Abraham is that way with God. There's just a really honest relationship, but he's depressed. He's really bummed and frustrated and angry. You can hear it uh, in his tone. And in verse 3, Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So just one of my servants. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. So he makes it clear. Now, earlier he had said through Sarah, it's going to happen through Sarah, but now he's just saying, yeah, I guess I'm going to have kids, but they're not really going to be my kids. They're going to be sort of my adopted kids that are just going to be my servants that get born in my house. And, and he says, no, not any of them are going to be your heir, but your own child that comes from your own DNA, Abraham, is going to be your heir. And then, as God's speaking to him in verse 5, he brought him outside and said, look now towards the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So God takes him outside. Now, let you know, this happened earlier in chapter 13. 
Remember the Lord in chapter 13, verse 14 through 18, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place from which you are northward, southward, eastward, and westward. And in Genesis 13, 15, he goes on to say, for all the land which you see, I will give you and your descendants. How long? Forever. And I will make your descendants this time as the dust of the earth. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its breadth, for I give it to you. Then Abraham moved his tent, went and dwelt in the Tinderbeth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to worship the Lord. So he responded to that word at that time by building an altar and worshiping. But... He didn't really believe God. He believed him, but not a trust in God that what God is saying is indeed going to happen. But this time, it's different. What's one of the biggest differences? He just met with Melchizedek. And he came from that revelation with Melchizedek saying, I am possessors of all things, not only the earth, but the heavens I'm a possessor of. And I am now understanding who the God who called me out of the Ur of the Chaldees and brought me to this land, I'm beginning to realize who he is. He is the God of all the heavens and all the earth. And he's getting to the point to understand God has got me in his hands he is my shield and, and he is my everything. In, in him I'm to live and move and have my being. This earth, it has no rewards. The best things on this earth are bitter sweet. But when God tells him this time, look at the stars of the heavens. That's how many kids you're gonna have. Now, one of the most important verses in all the Bible is found here, the very next verse, verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, interesting enough, when we read through verse 5, there's actually a very subtle point that's being made here that a lot of people miss. As a matter of fact, if you're reading with me out of the New King James, really bad translation here. At the end of verse 5, so shall your descendants, plural be, in the King James, which has got it right, it says, so shall your seed, capital S, E-E-D, singular. A matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul builds an entire doctrine on this point. Quoting this very verse, chapter 15, verse 5, in Galatians 3.16, and to Abram and his seed were the promises made. Not, he does not say, and to the seeds, plural, little s, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, capital S, singular, who is Christ? And 
He said, look at this. And in this vast number, so shall your seed, singular, referring to the Messiah. So when Abraham believed God, what all was he believing in? He just met Melchizedek. He met Jesus. And now he hears, so shall your seed, singular, be. Remember the prophecy from Genesis 3.15? First prophecy of the Bible <laughs> made to Eve. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and what? Her seed, capital S-E-E-D. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his hill. So there's the prophecy how Satan will attack the Messiah and have some uh, ability to injure things, but then Christ is going to crush his head as he, Colossians 2 says, he destroyed all the principalities and powers in their stronghold. So when Abraham believed, yes, in the number of the stars, so his children would be, it says here in Romans 4, we're going to look at it in a minute, it says, in hope against hope, believed. Even though he was old and Sarah, he says about his wife, that her, her womb as good as dead. <laughs> and my wife, she is good as dead. She's an old lady. In hope, against hope, he believed. He is saying it's impossible with man. This is an impossibility. But I believe with God, he's going to do it. And in particular, so shall your descendant, the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world shall be. And in verse 6, he believed in the Lord and he accounted to him for righteousness. Now make a note of this. In verse 6, and he believed, it's just one word. It's one Hebrew word. It sounds like amen, like in the prayer we say amen. It's not that word. It's a different word. It sounds almost identical. It's A-M-A-N, Amon, Amon. But it basically means very similar to the same thing. It's basically amen. A-M-E-N is like, so be it, Lord. I'm in agreement with that. Amon is very similar to that, but it means it's a fact. It's established. It's already accomplished. It's already done. And so Abraham really doesn't say anything but one word. <laughs> and Abraham said, Amon. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. You know, I think of that thief on the cross, <laughs> and it's like he believed in the Lord. Now, the way it came out was, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, today you'll be with me in paradise. He believed in the Messiah. He believed even though he was a sinner that Christ was paying for his sins, that he, when future tense, you come into your kingdom, you're a king, you got a kingdom, when you're going to raise from the dead, when you come to your kingdom, today you'll be with me in paradise. In essence, Abraham says it's a fact. It's done. It's established. I trust in it. I believe in it. And in that very moment, 
God says, I'm going to let you know what happened behind the scenes in the moment, which I don't even know if he said it out loud. I think it was more in his heart when he said, I believe, immediately, the counting system of heaven, all his sins were gone, and bing, 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 righteous. He's perfectly righteous. It was counted to him, just like accounting, just like the math. It was added it up. His faith in saying, amen, it's a fact. I trust in it. I believe in what God just said. Even though it's impossible with man, nothing's impossible with God. I totally believe that what God said he is able to perform. And, and the Lord said, Abraham, let me tell you all the stuff that happened. And that just in your heart saying, amen. All your sins are taken away. And not only that, in Colossians 2, we learn that the books to account any future sins to us is also gone. <laughs> that there is no way to account sin or failure or shame or guilt. It's all gone. The only thing that's written in heaven is our name in the book of life. All the handwriting, the ordinances against us, Colossians 2 said, they're gone. He nailed them to the cross, took them out of the way. Now, of course, this would not be accomplished until Christ. So in the Old Testament, they're all looking in the future to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, us in the New Testament, we're looking back and saying it's because of what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. So our faith is in the past history of what Christ has already done. Theirs was in the future history of what Christ was going to do. They believed it's already been done. It's just a matter of a few thousand years. At this point, a couple thousand years. And it's going to be done. And I believe that God said what he said, he's going to do it. The Messiah's going to come. He's going to crunch on that old serpent's head. And he's declaring us that that word account, it also can mean reckon, impute, declare, make it so that you are righteous. And of course, in the New Testament, the meat gets on that bone, doesn't it? We learn that Jesus, who had no sin, he became sin for us. We learn in Hebrew that only sin can put a person to death. If there is no sin, there is no death. In Hebrews, but yet Jesus died, but he never sinned. What killed him? Your sin, my sin. Jesus could have infinitely hung on that cross. But when he imputed our sins upon him, sin killed him. Not his own sin, but our sins put him to death. Our sins were upon him. What's the proof of that? He died. But then the sins were off of him because they were dead. They were gone. They, were, they no longer had power. They no longer had reality. They're buried in the deepest sea. They're scattered as far as east or the west. They're gone. How do we know that? Because he raised again from the dead. And so there's so much more in the New Testament theology. All we have here, though, 
is that Abraham is the first person in recorded human history where God said he did it. And now from here into eternity, everybody else who is going to go to heaven is going to have the same exact story. They had faith in God, and that faith was accounted for righteousness. 100% of everybody, without exception, were going to be in heaven by faith. Now, if you would, turn to Romans 4. And this whole chapter talks about this. And, and so tonight we may not make it further than verse 6 of uh, chapter 15, but it's okay because we want to take a moment and, and, and really look at one of the most important verses in the Bible. So chapter 4 is all about this verse 6 of Genesis 15. And so he's talking about it. What then shall we say in Romans 4 verse 1? What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? If, Ab if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That is what the scripture says. Now let's expound on this. Verse 4. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, as a gift, but as debt. But this accounting was done without works, only by faith. Verse 5 now. To him who does not work, emphatic, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes, the same word, accounts, declares, imputes, reckons righteousness, a very emphatic again, apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, amen to that, and whose sins are covered. Of course, we will learn the much more than covered, that they are gone. <laughs> And remember Hebrews 11, Paul goes back and, and talks about this a minute when he's talking about the Jews who didn't want to walk by faith. They wanted to walk by the works, especially the works of the law. But in Romans 11, verse 5 and 6, he said, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace, Jews who are looking for righteousness by faith alone. Now he says, if by grace, then it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. What is Paul talking about here? The frustration so many of you have felt in the Christian church. When they tell you it's a gift, it's all about grace. You're going to heaven because God's made it so. But in the next breath, they tell you that your sin just might have undone all of that. Your lack of church attendance might have undone that. The fact that you're not being as diligent in praying and reading the Bible as you should be maybe is a sign that it never really happened to begin with. They, they quickly, as they tell you it's by grace, they unravel it 
and say your works needs to confirm it. Your works need to not undo it. Your works are the catalyst that make it sure. And so immediately it goes back on you. One way or another, the, the whole weight falls back on you and you're screwing it up. You're lagging. You're not sufficient enough. And man, Christ did so much and you're not appreciative enough. You're not repenting enough. You're not sincere enough. You're not holy enough. You're not... And immediately we're put in this thing of, of doubt and it's like, stop it. <laughs> Either grace means a free gift and absolutely of no works apart from works, period, or just say it's works. Quit frustrating me. But understand this. You can't start with works and then get to grace. If grace is in the Christian doctrine, which I think everybody thinks grace is in the Christian doctrine, it has to start with grace. And think about it. It has to continue with grace and it has to end with grace or you can never have grace to begin with. Do you, do you understand? You, you cannot logically have a doctrine that starts with grace and ends with works because grace was never really grace. Do you, do you understand? You can also never have a doctrine of works and then eventually get to grace. <laughs> it cannot happen because your works is what produced what? The grace? No. And so if you have grace, it's essential that it continues in grace and it ends in grace. That's why Paul said in Colossians, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did we receive Christ as a gift? By the power of the Spirit. It was a completely 100% the work of God apart from my works. He imputed it by the merit of my faith. I believe that the impossible is not impossible with God. I believe that he loves me. But I'm not very lovable. And I know God get angry about sin, but I know that he loves me. I know that he wants me. I have faith. Let's go back to Romans chapter four there in verse seven. So blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man to whom the Lord shall what? Not impute sin. The same word. Not account sin, not reckon sin. There is no way in grace to have sin imputed after that. Does the blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? We say that faith was accounted to Abraham, what? For righteousness. How then was it accounted? Why he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Chapter 15, verse 6, he still was uncircumcised. That doesn't come till Genesis 17. He was uncircumcised. Now, while, not while circumcised, but uncircumcised. That's interesting. He was declared righteous when he was still an uncircumcised 
Arab from Iraq. That's the truth. God declared him a Hebrew for whatever reason. He's a Hebrew because he's a Hebrew. Uh, and now he declared him righteous and he had not yet been circumcised. Important point. Verse 11 of Romans 4 and he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while still uncircumcised that he might be the father of all those who believe though they were uncircumcised that righteousness might be imputed to them also have you heard how many times this has happened now he's talked about in faith being imputed to us several times and he's going to keep saying it in verse 12 so he's the father of the circumcision to those um, who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the same steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Verse 13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham and to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Do we, do we understand that? When was Abraham declared righteous? The law wasn't even around. The law that would come through Moses was hundreds of years away. What laws had God given Abraham to this point? None. Just walk, and wherever you walk, that's going to be your inheritance. That's it. And he believed God that against hope, that he could have kids still, and Sarah could have kids. He believes that God can do the impossible, and he believed that it would be not all the multitude of descendants, but also of the seed, singular. For if those, in verse 14, who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where uh, their law is no, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace, that the promise might be sure to all the seed, might be an absolute 100% guarantee. The word sure there is guaranteed. Guaranteed fact. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith, Abraham, who is the father of us all. So here's the point. God, who is God, he is sovereign. He's the creator he has said from the beginning, the way men are going to be declared righteous is by faith. Now, the fact is, is we're self-righteous. So he created the law. Remember Romans 3 said, God never made the law thinking anybody could keep it. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. So God never in his mind, but that's the way men interpreted it. Men interpreted, oh, I think God wants us to make ourselves righteous by keeping the law. And once we are righteous by keeping, doing the right thing and being obedient, then God will declare us righteous. No. From the very beginning here, when God chose Abraham, it was forever. God chose Moses, it was for a deed. God chose Samson, it was for a deed. God chose Samuel, it was for a deed. But when God chose Abraham, he set up a guy who's the example for all of humans forever. And so in him, he never was declared by obeying and that obedience is counted as righteousness. 
So he didn't say, Abraham, would you see that you just sinned and repent of your sins and say you won't do that anymore? Yes, I shouldn't have said Sarah was my sister. I should have said she was my wife. I'm so sorry. Okay, I'm going to count your repentance and your sincerity and your promise that you'll never do it again as righteousness. Now, that would have been the law, right? We would have all said God declares a person righteous by repenting, being sincere, being determined not to do those kind of things anymore in the future. And that is the way man in his natural course of nature thinks. But God from the beginning has always declared that his way of declaring men righteous would be by faith. So back to verse 16. Therefore, it's a faith that it might be according to grace that the promise that might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father um, of us all. As it's written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Do you hear that? Who, in verse 18, this is important, contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken so your descendants shall be. In verse 19, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body as already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Being fully convinced, this is key, verse 21, being fully convinced that he who had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Let me read that again, verse 21. Being fully convinced that he who had promised, he was able to perform. And in his heart, he said, amen. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. And it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Abraham's story was not for Abraham. It is, the, it is the most important foundational stone for the rest of humankind. In verse 23, it was not written for his sake alone that he was, it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who is delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification, are made righteous. So God is speaking to us, and he's not saying, look up at the stars. He's saying, look at the man, Jesus, who came and lived and died and rose again. God loves you. This is why his son was sent. This is why for the joy Jesus came. He bore your sins. 1 Corinthians 15, right? He paid for our sins. He was punished for our sins. According to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Do you believe God loves you? Do you believe in Jesus? Then 
he's an impute righteousness to you that you shall not perish and you shall have eternal life. Looking over to Galatians 3 real quickly here and we'll finish up tonight. Come back, look at this again for a few moments next week and then finish into chapter 15 and 16. But in chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So this is grace moving to works. Is that, is that what happened? No. Verse, Galatians 3, verse 5 now. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you works miracles among you. Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And so again, John, 4, John chapter 1, verse 12, As many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God who just believe in his name. Do you believe Jesus is your Savior. Call upon the name of the Lord, and what? You'll be saved. The Lord's rich to all who call upon his name. Right? Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God, how? Through faith in Christ Jesus. John 5.24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Isn't that really what Abraham did? He believed in God's word and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now he believed in the seeds of the descendants and then he believed in the singular seed of the Messiah. Isn't that what we do, the same thing? We believe in that seed of Abraham, who is the Messiah from the tribe of Judah. And then in John 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew and the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed, how? Faith to faith. As it's written, the just shall live by faith. How does this work? Let, let me explain it to you. I have faith that Jesus loves me. Now, I've been a Christian three years down the road. You know how I make it today? I believe that Jesus loves me. You know how I'm going to make it 10 years from now? I believe Jesus loves me. How did it begin? I believe that Jesus has the power to save me. Three years later, guess what I believe? Jesus has the power to save me. But yet when I believe I'm such a sinner and I'm so weak and I daily fall short of the glory of God, three years later, <laughs> what's changed? 
The closer we walk with the Lord, the greater our sins are evident to us, right? So you think about it, as we mature in the Lord, we're going to grow closer to the Lord, and our wickedness is going to be more evident. Righteous Isaiah, he fell down and said, I'm a sinful man, and I dwell in the midst of a sinful people. He saw his sinfulness when he saw the Lord clearly. It's the same thing. It's by faith in his grace, faith in his love, faith in his receiving us, even though we're sinners and weak and unworthy. Three years from now, faith. But I've been a Christian three years. I should know better. And I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have lusted. I shouldn't have had greed. I shouldn't have been so angry. I shouldn't have been. But we are. You see, the holy you are doesn't make your body change one bit. A lot of people believe when I'm holy, my body will start getting holy. It does not. Paul in Romans 7 says, our flesh is sold under sin and to bondage. And until the day we die, we're in this prison, this body that wants to sin. And it's a battle and we're going to walk And I I don't think that, again, sanctification, which is a whole other topic, is we give in and say, well, I'll just have faith that God's going to get me to heaven and it doesn't matter how I live. No, the love of God constrains us. Any questions before we go into a a few moments of worship and prayer? A lot covered here tonight. I I knew it was going to take me a little bit of time. And this has sort of been the theme since I've been here establishing this doctrine before the Lord moves us to whatever the next is. Let's just pray. Let's have a few of you guys pray. And do keep in mind Easter coming up this week and God would make us bold witnesses. Mm.